I've had some perfectly nice relationships, but I haven't been able to make anything stick. And so I would say that my relationship with romance has been incredibly fraught. Novelist Meredith Russo. To a certain extent, my art remains a way for me to sort of do test runs in my brain of what I would like to have once I am able to get my hands on it. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Sometimes I can't imagine experiencing love without writing it. Writing comes more naturally to me than romantic love itself. In fact, it might be my first love. So when I do love a person or lose a person, I want to write it all down. I guess it's my way of trying to control the narrative, or at least figure it out. On today's show, three writers talk about the relationship between art and love and how they use their creative work to explore ideas about dating, courtship, belonging, and commitment. Two of the writers we'll hear from are young adults. They're in high school or just starting college. The third is in her 30s. All of them, in their own way, understand love and life only by writing it. It's how they learn big lessons and play out scenarios, how they try on different identities, and how they express their aspirations. We'll come back to Meredith Russo a bit later. First, I want to introduce you to a young writer named Alondra Bobadilla. Alondra is a senior at Fenway High School in Boston, but she is better known as Boston's first ever youth poet laureate. Alondra started writing poetry around age 12. Back then, she didn't know much about poetry or even what it meant to be a writer. She just started doing it. It's not like I can remember a distinct day of my life where I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I was just always playing around with different styles of writing. And then one day I was like, all right, this is my thing. So I'm just going to stick with this. <laughs> a few years later, Alondra is 15 and going through a difficult stretch in her life. She loses her aunt. And then a month later, her grandmother passes away. Part of what makes this so hard is that the people in her grandmother's apartment building have become kind of a second family to Alondra. Hispanic people are very family-oriented. So a lot of the people who lived in that apartment were Hispanic. So naturally, everybody was just like, there was always watching over your kids. Like, you weren't someone's kids, but you were still, like, doing typical greetings in Spanish. It just was like a big family, which was, like, really weird. Like, I had more grandmothers than just her, if that makes any sense. There was a lot of conversation amongst me and my father, because um, I was his mom, and just me and my mom as well, of just like, how do we go back? You know, those people are still near and dear to our heart. How do we return? This is, sucks. Like, this is, <laughs> you know, you don't want to leave them by themselves. They're still grieving. You want to help them, but we're the immediate family. There was just a lot of questions flying. So Alondra returns to the building one day to visit her grandmother's best friend. She brings flowers to the woman, who's thrilled to see her. About a week before that, I kind of had this question in mind, and it was a question that I posed in a prayer. My faith is very important to me, so I was just like, God, like, what is love? Like, what is that? Like, what does that mean? Why is it important? Et cetera. All those questions. As she's sitting in the apartment of her grandmother's friend, Alondra starts to notice something. 
this woman is taking amazing care of her husband, who has severe dementia. She cared for him with such a, a tenderness and with so much intention and so much love. And she really had no other helper except for this one lady who also used to help with my grandmother, who came by every once in a while. The woman gets up to make Alondra some coffee. So Alondra starts looking around the apartment. Her eyes settle on the couple's black and white wedding photo from many decades ago. I just noticed, like, the love on her face. I kind of started thinking about, like, the rom-coms that I used to watch with my mom, and I was just like, she has all of this love on her face that, like, I only thought was possible in, like, a movie. So much love. The whole twinkle in her eye, and I don't... It, it was just so obvious, and that picture was so breathtaking for that reason and all the other... Alondra realizes this love, that twinkle, it's still there. It's just taken on a new form. It was just a really mature love, if that makes any sense. And I just started thinking, and, you know, she was speaking about him. She was like, you know, I'm, I'm here with him. I'm here with him. And, and, and I remember when I left, I sat somewhere on a bench, and I just started writing. And I was just like, I thought about vows and how vows is like, you know, we take this and da 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 we take him. And then that part that goes like, till death do us part. I think that that's such a powerful statement. And then that's when I began to realize, you know, love is a lot more than a feeling. It, it has a lot to do with action as well and, and kind of feeding what you feel. It's, it's more than just she fed and he fed that look. That look that they had in that picture, they fed that through all of the time periods that they went through each other and all the things that I didn't get to see. So that's sort of like the big lesson that I learned, that love, that love is an action word. This visit teaches Alondra a more personal lesson, too. It shows her that writing can be a way to read the world, to read other people, and to work through her own relationships. I'm a bit of an overthinker, so I, I have this, like, I used to have this habit as a kid. I would walk around in circles and just, like, think about something until, like, I, I understood it. And I guess writing now is exactly that. It's just, like, I'm writing about it until I understand it. So I will literally, like, write and rewrite about something, whatever that something is, over and over and over until I feel like I get it. Poetry for me is like talking to myself and it's like talking to God. Right now, I'd say that a good 50, 60%, 70% of the poems I'm writing now have been about like love and like strictly like romance, not even about like friends or whatever. Sometimes, she says, her love poetry is aspirational. Here's Alondra reading an excerpt from one of her poems, which is untitled. This love, this love I carry in my spirit, it longs to expand with time, cover over your sins blind. It desires to embrace you in your old age when you can barely say my name, but your heart still throws out smooth bachata glides with mine. It moves my hips with pride, showing me off. I adorn your neck, proud chains hanging like the words from your mouth when you see me. Even now, as my skin wrinkles and my eyes got extra dimples, this love leaves you speechless. The wind stealing your compliments, leaving me in wonder. This love reaffirms to me the existence of God because you are his love letter word for word, breath to breath for me. I write this love like it's mine. That's Boston Youth Poet Laureate. Alondra Bobadilla. Like Alondra, Asia Herrera is a young writer. 
The two were close friends, actually. When we spoke with Asia, she had just finished the equivalent of high school because she was homeschooled. She's taking college classes now and expects to enroll full-time in the spring. Asia is a poet, novelist, memoirist. She's done it all. She's also been a tutor, team leader, and teaching artist at 826 Boston, a youth writing and publishing organization. Full disclosure, I am on the literary board at 826 Boston. Originally, I started writing poetry. Poetry was always like the rawest form of my expression. But I also loved stories, and I read avidly as a kid. So I ended up writing novels, I think six now. They're young adult, like fantasy kind of fiction. And then I took a break from that because it drove me crazy. And I started writing poetry, but like seriously writing poetry and like finding my voice and then writing about self-identity and like my relationships and all of that. Asia says she's demisexual, which means she doesn't develop attractions to just anyone. She has to know someone and build a strong emotional bond first. I think that connection is is super important. And I, I used to think that there was something like seriously wrong with me because I was like, everyone else is like having the hots over all these celebrities. And like I said, like I can totally admit that these people are good looking. Like it's not like that. It's just that they're like thinking all of these other things and I'm sitting there like, <laughs> no. This is a good segue because so much of what I've figured out about myself and like what, you know, is what's going on, right? Um, is through writing and, and writing an advice column. I noticed that the people don't need me that much. Like often the exercise that they do in terms of writing to me, that's the thing, right? Like once they've written it, they probably could have just read the letter to themselves and maybe gotten an answer. Can you talk about the practice of writing as decoding sort of what's happening in your brain and who you are? For the longest time, I didn't like to write about relationships of any kind because I wouldn't get rid of whatever it was, like a note or whatever. So then, or I wouldn't get rid of it right away. So then I would have to like go back and like look at it and like relive that relationship, whether it was a friendship or not. And that was so frustrating to me because I was like, I don't want like this keepsake of that at all. I felt like whenever I would need to write about it, it was not me writing about it in a good way. It was me writing about it in a very frustrated, like this person is driving me crazy. They don't listen to me. And then, you know, I have to go back and like read that and be like, <laughs> you know. But Asia says that she came to realize that writing helps her better understand the relationships in her life. I can't make sense of what's happening in my head without writing it. I need to journal. Like I, it is the way that I outlet and st- sort of understand. And, you know, I write kind of like in a circle. And I think a lot of people can maybe recognize that sort of like pattern where they like have a question and they start writing about everything. And then they sort of like loop back around by the end of it and they kind of have their answers. So it's like talk, it's like having a conversation with yourself. Do you find that when you've written it down, that you're able to relax a little bit or that there's a release or that any tension you might have been holding about the relationship, is it a help for that? For me, it definitely helps me, like, because, like, the frustration goes to the paper for me. It, like, comes through the pen and goes onto the paper. It helps me find a resolution. And for me, like, planning and resolution is, like, so important to me. So when I'm getting to that resolution, I start to feel more at ease because I'm like, oh, yeah, I have a plan. It's fine. Everything will work out in the end. You know what I mean? Asia has been journaling since she was eight years old. At that point, she was using pen and paper. Then she switched over to note-taking apps. 
These days, she documents her life using an iPad, an Apple Pencil, and an app called GoodNotes. But she's found a certain freedom in fiction, a freedom to explore emotions and experiences obscured in the lives of invented characters. Plus, in a novel, she gets to decide what happens. Here's Asia reading a brief excerpt from her novel, Little Red Assassin. He was backlit by the bright moonlight, his dark eyes seeming even darker in this light, almost pitch black. Petals floated through the night air. It was as if he was a painting. He was unaware of the momentary beauty, however, and proceeded to glare at her when she offered no response. I should ask you the same It's question. therapeutic to me in the way that I still do, like, address past trauma within the novel. And it's a very roundabout way of doing it rather than just writing about it, like, in a piece of poetry. Because poetry is, to me, very straightforward. You know what I mean? Like, if you're writing about the trauma, the trauma is there. And it's right within those small stanzas. There's nowhere to hide it. Whereas when you're writing a novel, there's a whole nother world, so many different characters, world building, and like the trauma's there, but it's hiding in character, other characters' relationships. And it wasn't until that I finished the novel, like I wrote a series and I finished it and then I went back and I was like, oh, that trauma is manifesting in the great relationship that these two characters have that I don't have in my life, right? And it's sort of like imagining and it's like a sad thing to say, but it's like consoling yourself and creating this relationship or this very strong bond that these two characters have that you know that you'll never have, right? But it's like satisfying in a way. Or or that maybe you'll have, but you just don't have yet. I mean, I kind of feel like when I read fiction, I'm like, oh, this is like the author's fan fiction of their own life. You know, if you're writing a younger character, it's sort of perhaps the past, but I don't know. Like, it seems aspirational to me. Does it, does it feel that way, like, ever? Sometimes it feels aspirational. Other times, it doesn't feel as aspirational. Sometimes it just feels like, well, I did that with a character, but that's not going to happen to me. You know what I mean? And it's not depressing or sad because it helps me, like, sort of imagine and, like, put that that trauma sort of, like, to rest, I guess. It's okay to sort of envision the, the future in some sense. But as a writer, it's very easy to let that slip out of your control. And then you right. have a bunch of loose dogs and <laughs> it just, it spirals out of control. Um, that's something that I'm still like working on. It's like allowing potential to be potential. And then you have to see if the person lives up to it before exactly. you write the whole story, I guess. But, exactly. Yeah. Because this is chapter one and you're thinking about chapter 50 and <laughs> we shouldn't do that. Shouldn't do that yet. You're thinking about the sequel, right? <laughs> exactly. It's like, okay, so in the sequel, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And it's like, could we get to like chapter five first? <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to us about writing. Thank you for having me. That's writer Asia Herrera. When we come back, YA author Meredith Russo talks about how becoming a writer might pave a path for a romantic future. Okay, we're back. Hello, Meredith. Howdy, Meredith. This is Meredith Russo. I'm 33 years young. I am the author of two young adult books that focus on transgender issues in the South. The first is If I Was Your Girl, and the second is Birthday. And I am a pretty constant gadfly on Twitter who loves to cackle and devour human pleasure and turn it into discomfort. And I'm here on a podcast. As a young adult writer, Meredith thinks a lot about emotional growth. She thinks about the kind of lessons 
we've talked about this season. She reminds us, though, that not everyone learns the same lessons at the same time. I think there are benchmark ages, but one of the funny things about being trans, and for those who don't know, I am a, I am a transgender person, is that to a certain extent, a huge number of these sort of identity-based benchmarks that you experience in your life are filtered through your gender. And when you change your gender, or at least change the outward expression of it, you, to a certain extent, kind of undo a lot of that work, or at least a lot of the like coming-of-age moments that you've had throughout your life stop making sense or being especially usable. And emotionally and socially, you are reset to a kind of adolescence and have to start again. But you have to start again faster while paying bills and like holding down a job. I asked Meredith when she first imagined romance and what that vision looked like. When I was a little kid in the, in the fifth grade, I still very solidly remember the first crush. I ever had. It was with a girl named Rachel, and I used to just sort of sit and quietly imagine being in parks in the snow. And this was Chattanooga, Tennessee. It like never snowed. And we're getting pulled on a sledge by like white horses and like getting getting married and we're both wearing big fancy dresses. It was all Disney stuff. It was all grand gestures and fairy tales. Unlike Alondra and Asia, Meredith didn't find writing as a kid. She expressed herself mostly with art and music, but she loved to read. I came from a very literate household that like really valued literacy and especially reading fiction. I, I learned to appreciate it after the fact that like we grew up pretty significantly poor in Appalachia, and my mom still took the time as as early as when I was like one one-year-old and could understand what was happening around me to sit me down every day and like read books that were always like a little too advanced for me and to really like shower me with like love and praise when I expressed interest in them. I was reading The Hobbit in the third grade and I was obsessively reading Lord of the Rings by the fifth grade and so I like a lot of the Harry Potter craze kind of passed me by weirdly for a YA writer because by the time Harry Potter came out I was reading The Silmarillion and I was like it seems like baby stuff to me. I don't know why I would read that. Meredith's writing career really started with fan fiction. She liked writing her own stories about the Alien franchise. She found Sigourney Weaver's character very attractive, so she had inspiration. Then I got to high school and I was friends with a bunch of girls who were Harry Potter nerds and they were really into like Final Fantasy and all sorts of things. And they would like write collaborative fan fiction with each other. And I was like, well, I want to hang out with my friends and this is what they do. So I, I did that with them and I was good at it. In college, Meredith took writing classes as electives. That's where writing took on a new importance for her. There was like an old lady who'd expressed some homophobic opinions in the class. And I wrote a story about like two boys like falling in love and there's a climax where they like kiss in the back of a in the back of like an Oldsmobile while it's raining and I read it in front of the class and like kept making eye contact with her and of course I'm joking a little bit but that was a moment where I discovered that you can use art aggressively like all the best things in my life I started doing it out of spite but then (laughs) realized that I liked it and that it could you know that I could create meaningful things But spite gave way to something else. Writing stories about people like herself, trans characters looking for love, gave her maps for how a relationship could be. Maps that might lead her to happiness in real life. 
How has the process of writing novels allowed you to play out what you might want to see in your own life or what you might not want to see? Writing for queer people, writing for oppressed people is revolutionary in this way. We get to present our pain in a context where it's on our terms because so often pain of like racialized and black and queer and disabled people and trans people is, uh, when it is allowed to be expressed, it is commodified. But we also get to explore the possibility of happiness and of pleasures, which we, by virtue of where we live or the times in which we live, have not had the opportunity to experience yet. Queer and trans children are not born into queer and trans neighborhoods and do not have queer and trans family traditions and do not have any legacy that we can access or any like narratives to give ourselves dignity unless we are lucky enough to stumble across them and so i feel i don't want to i don't want to inflate my 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 value to the struggle but there is a degree to which i feel i have a responsibility to be writing fiction which to be in, to be increasing the odds that a kid who is in my situation when I was younger might find something that I didn't find. How has your real-life experiences with romance influenced your writing, and how has your writing influenced your real-life experiences with romance? I would say that my real-life experiences with romance have been complicated because before I transitioned I kind of wasn't really capable of having relationships because sort of inevitably whether it was with quote-unquote another man or with a woman things would be expected of me and I would be perceived in ways that were incredibly disagreeable to me and so I would I would end up leaving men or the women that I was dating who had thought they were getting a nice, sensitive art school boy, but a boy all the same. And I am a neurodiverse person. So something's happening in my brain that's between like attention deficit disorder and autism. So other people's, other people can be kind of a black box to me in the first place. I had one significant relationship in my 20s that went very badly. And that's all I'll say on that. And then after transitioning... What age, what age were you? It was, it was like, it was the bulk of my 20s. So, so okay. it was from when I was like, it was from when I was like 24 to like 28 or 29. I spent almost my whole 20s in a very bad relationship. This is where I can see Meredith playing out better narratives in writing. Both of her young adult novels are love stories. They're about young trans women who survive the great vulnerability that comes with letting someone love them. She allows her characters happy endings. And in a way, she's allowing herself that, too. One thing Meredith has learned is that she could be happy dating someone a lot like herself. She says that after transitioning, it didn't feel natural to date another trans person at first. But now... Like, you can do that. Like, it just doesn't occur to a lot of us for a while that you can. And there are a not insignificant number of us for whom that never quite works out. There are trans people who are not interested in dating other trans people, especially with regards to loving oneself. When I very first started transitioning and before I started transitioning, I wanted desperately to please and to be seen as normal 
by and to be loved by cisgender people. I wanted to be seen as real by them. The idea of dating another trans person, it seemed counterproductive to that. It seemed uh, in some way, and this is before anybody cancels me, this is a, pa- this is a past incredibly traumatized version of me negotiating with herself. Um, it, seemed, it seemed freakish, like uh, romantically or sexually ghettoizing oneself. I just want to point something out here. My therapist once said to me that I use writing for control. If I get to write the narrative, I'm the one who gets to give it meaning, to decide what happened. I mean, I wrote a whole memoir and got to write my own version of a bad breakup. It was actually a pretty good way to get over it. But with Meredith's books, she's also unveiling potential. The books and stories have even helped her make some sense of what romance really means— Even the lesson that a big cinematic moment isn't always as meaningful as some of the scenes she's known for writing, where characters are really just listening to each other and seeing each other. What an ideal relationship looks like now is basically someone who I know I can always invite to go do something with me and will most of the time want to go do it and who will do the same with me whose horizons I will expand a little bit and who will expand my horizons by taking me along to do things and meet people I wouldn't have thought to do on my own. Someone who will more days than not be there with an arm around me or my arm around them to just like watch TV or like play on our phones beside each other and someone to sleep next to and to get oxytocin without having to constantly explain myself or like go through the kind of exhausting dance of like seduction and I don't need or want big expensive gifts or things that took a lot of work to make I just want someone I just want someone's hand in mine and someone to spend my time with that almost made me have true human emotions and also (laughs) personally I think there's a lot we can all learn from Meredith's books In her novel, Birthday, she writes, Maybe that's what life is about, surviving what you can't control and clinging to the good things that the wind whips up. I love that line so much. Listen, I know not everyone thinks they're a writer. And even I get cynical when someone tells me to journal, like as a verb. But I think one of those lifetime lessons is that putting your thoughts down, however you do it, can improve your relationships especially the one with yourself. It's a part of your brain and it exists and it, and it loves you and wants to help you self-actualize. And I would say that I think one of the things that stops people from writing generally is because they sit down in front of a blank word processor or a blank journal and they think like, well, I'm not going to make anything that's any good or I'm not going to have any insights or whatever. And it's not like that. You're not trying to write the great American novel. You're just keeping a journal or writing a fun little story that you will maybe show to a friend or two. Art and the expression of yourself should be done for their own sake, not for profit. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a communist. (laughs) But I mean, the idea that you, as someone who does write for a living, you know that you're keeping a mood journal not because you're going to sell it, but because you will get something from it for yourself. I still play guitar and I still draw um, and I'm not going to get any money for those. And I don't think people have to exercise. I think that creativity should be viewed in the same way. I don't do push-ups every other morning 
so that I will make money doing push-ups or so that somebody will walk in and go, whoa, she's so good at push-ups. I, I do it because it feels good to do, even if it's a little challenging in the moment. Thank you so much, Meredith, for talking to us today about writing. Thank you so much, Meredith, for having me, Meredith, on to talk about writing. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith and Jenna Serbo do our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGorry and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. Love Letters is also an advice column. Send your questions about your own relationships to loveletters at boston.com. I love to read them. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're online at loveletters.show. Did you know our name means guardian of the sea? I did, in fact. It's just a little, it's my It's my intro line for Meredith. I have always felt like it's a horrible irony that I can't swim. But you can't swim? I can't swim. And actually, one time I, I went kind of far into the ocean in Rhode Island, and I, I really was like in a riptide. And then I just felt my friend grab my ponytail and just yank me <laughs> by the ponytail. I thought she was going to rip my hair out, but I was like, well, I'm alive. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. Thank you.